from St. Matthew's Gospel, and the Magi saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Good morning, friends. Happy Feast of the Epiphany. Well, not really, actually. Uh, Tomorrow is the Feast of the Epiphany, the visit of the wise men, January the 6th, but the rector can pretty much do what he wants, and if he decides to move Epiphany to the Sunday before, he can do so, which I've done. And so today, even though it is technically the second Sunday after Christmas, we are looking at the Feast of the Epiphany, the visit of the wise men from the East, wherever that is, as they come to meet this new kid from Bethlehem. And I want to look at a question today, a series of, uh, I I want to look at the story of the wise men as an illustration of how, how people come to faith, uh, the, both the Magi and you and me, everybody. Is, is there a process, a, a sequence of events that actually leads someone to faith in Jesus? And I submit to you that the answer is yes. Um, I am not going to, dis- to discuss today who is in and who is out, who is saved or not. We're not going to talk about free will and predestination because that question continues to linger, well, since the beginning of the church. We are instead going to look at today the sequence, the series of events that the wise men show us about not who comes to faith, but how. This is really cool. So I want to show you something, how every human being, including me and including you and including anybody else who becomes a Christian, how do they do it? Three points. I'm going to look at challenged with discontent. Secondly, confronted in a meeting. And then finally, finding the truth. So, so the wise men show us, the three wise men show us three things. Funny. Um, they show us how we are, they are challenged with discontent. They are confronted in a meeting and they find the truth they're seeking. You guys ready? Hey, by the way, here's a fun thing, fun church fact. If you've never smelled frankincense before in your life, you just did. Somebody gave me a big chunk of a chunk of some uh, frankincense from the Jordan, and we just crushed it up and burned it. So if you wondered what it smelled like, you just smelled it. Anyhow, three points today. Challenged with discontent, confronted in a meeting, and finding the truth. So first thing I want to see, the first thing I want to show you in the story of the Magi is confronted they, the Magi, and you and me, are confronted with discontent. Matthew's gospel tells us that after Jesus' birth, and you know this, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. Now, how many wise men were there? Wrong. (laughs) We don't know, actually. We know there's at least two, because the word is majoi, it's plural in Greek. There's at least two, but the text actually doesn't tell us how many there were. And the reason I'm saying that is because oftentimes like I talked about on Christmas Eve, sentiment and the ideas that we think are in the text really aren't there. I'll show you something else. These magi, we three kings of Orient are, but they're not kings. (laughs) They're not kings. The magi are not kings. Magi is the real word. The, The magi are not kings, right? They don't rule anything. They're not potentates of any particular geographic area. What they are, though, this is really cool, the Magi is an occupation. What they were is that they were, listen, they were royal advisors to the king. The Magi 
were royal advisors to the king, no matter how many there were, right? Their job, like, you know, the situation room in the White House. I knew somebody who worked there once. <clears throat> their job, the Magi's job, was to know stuff, was to know as much as they could about everything around them, right? To keep the king informed, to keep the big guy aware of what's going on, right? About all sorts of stuff, money and advances in technology and the economy and taxes and social discontent, interest rates, allies, enemies, you name it. The Magi, their job was to keep the big guy, their king, informed about what's going on in the world. Remember, uh, did, you, did you learn this as a kid? Uh, a story went like this, a little song. In 1492, Columbus sailed what? The ocean blue, right? Now, why did he go? Christopher Columbus was an Italian, and he sailed from Spain. Why did Christopher Columbus go looking for China, right? That's what he's looking for. He went because the king told him to go, and the king funded him and said, go find a, a passage to China. This is the same idea, right? These magi are out on a reconnaissance mission from the king of wherever they're out where they are from. And the magi, here's the cool thing. The magi, they knew a lot about a lot of stuff. They're like the Harvard, Yale-trained uh, blue bloods of the ancient Near East, right? If you were a magi, you were a rock star. You were the guy who was at the top of the heap in the people that made decisions. And so the magi, the king sends the magi, our kings, sends the magi and says, go find out what's going on with that star. See, the, the uh, magi like everybody else at the time, they believed that astrological signs were signals of important historical events, right? I mean, they knew a lot of things, but one of the things they knew was that if something's going on in the heavens, that's big. They knew, they knew that a discovery, something was going on over there somewhere. We don't know where that is yet, but something's going on just over the horizon. Something's up, right? So, Here's the question I want you to consider. Point number one, what moves the Magi to go, listen, is that they are discontent with the present. I'm going to say it again. The reason the Magi go is because they are discontent with the present. I mean, it is going to, this, by the way, it wasn't just three kings on, you know, an Uber. It was, it was three, five, ten, twenty Magi with a caravan, with a military entourage, 500 people going across the mountains of Iran or wherever they're from. It's a, it's a big, expensive, dangerous journey, something you do not undertake lightly. So why do they go? Why not just, you know, keep this star thing hush-hush, right? Why risk it, man? Why risk it? Well, simple. They are discontent with the present. And so are you. Over break, uh, I did have a break, by the way. I was up, in, up, up north where it was colder than, well, not today, but colder than last, this earlier in the week. But over break, I, I picked up a book, and I was rereading parts of it, a book by Jordan Peterson called 12 Rules for Living. It's a great book. I've read it before. I've commended it to you. Uh, but Peterson, something, Peterson said something really, really profound and cool, and he said this. He said, success makes us complacent. That's a great quote. Success makes us complacent. In other words, the human heart, yours and mine, has at its heart a yearning, 
a sense for something else. What's next? We say, we say casually, the grass is greener on the other side of the fence, right? The human heart has as part of our, our, who we are as people and beings, part of the human condition is a need to go, even if it's dangerous, even if it's risky. It's part of the human condition. And historians have always referred to this, this is a great word that nobody ever uses anymore, if you look at the Greeks and the Romans and the historians, they refer to this idea as the idea of angst. Angst. This deep longing that things should be better. That's what drives the Magi. That's what, that's what, that's what causes them to risk everything, to risk their lives, their reputations. What if we three kings from Orient are wrong? <laughs> What if they go and there's nothing there? Guess what? They just spent a ton of money that's not theirs. They're going to lose their job. They might even lose their lives. Point is, the point is, the human heart, theirs, mine, and yours, has at its root angst. The sense, this deep sense that something's not right. And God uses that, friends, to get our attention. Let me ask you this. How did he get you here? I don't mean today, how did he get here? I mean, how did God, what did God use in your life to kind of force you to take a risk, force you to be challenged, to reconsider your circumstances, to see the circumstances around you and say, this is not working for me. I'll give you an example from my own life. I've told you this before. I was very fortunate to have my midlife crisis at the ripe old age of 25 sounds funny, but it's actually true. I was 25 years old. Uh, I had my midlife crisis at 25. What do I mean by that? Well, by 25, I had, I had pretty much checked all the boxes. I had a master's degree. I had worked on a PhD, but I gave up because I was tired of it. But I was in a PhD program. I had since uh, left grad school, got a job, got married, um, had two kids, and was had two kids and a wife, which I still have. Well, I've got a third kid too. But back then, it was Katie, Amy, uh, Kathy and I, I was working in a corporate job in IT making, making ridiculous money as a 25-year-old, I will say. I had a beautiful wife. I had three wonderful kids, all of whom I still have. I even had, dude, I even had a house with a white picket fence. I did. I had it all, man. I literally had everything the world said, check, 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 check. Now you'll be happy, Rodriguez, but I was empty. And the thing which I, because the thing that I really needed wasn't what the world told me that I really needed. What I needed was a relationship with God. I didn't know that at the time. I do now. But success, Peterson's point is success makes us complacent, right? It makes us rest. But this angst, this, this, this motivation that motivates every human heart, the magi, mine, and yours, it drives us to ask why. It spurs us on at considerable risk and considerable cost. That's why most people never do it. Again, what if we three kings of Orient are wrong? Here's the question. Here's the question for you. How, how is God working on you right now? And, and, I, and I want you to sit on this for a minute because God will use this, this, this drive, this angst, this, this realization that the circumstances in your life are not satisfying. It spurs you to action, to seek him. So the first step in the conversion of the human heart is always the same, the need for an answer. And it brings me to my second point, 
the evidence. So these wise men, these wise men, they, they follow this star. They don't really know what's going on yet. They don't know where they're going even. It's 3,000 miles away. They follow this thing, but they don't know where they're going. It's moving strangely, and they embark on this long, dangerous, expensive, potentially deadly trip, kind of like life, right? It's a good metaphor for life. It, the life is sometimes dangerous and sometimes uh, challenging and oftentimes suffering. But the Magi, they follow this star. They follow the leadings of God, even though they don't know it yet, who pique their curiosity, but they follow the evidence. They come to Bethlehem. They go to the king of, of Judea. The, the star stops over Judea. They assume it's got to be a king of Judea. They go to the current palace, and there's already a king there. He's not happy about it one bit. But the point is God uses the circumstances of their lives to draw them towards himself. God will use the circumstances of your life, friends, to shake you up, to knock you over, to rattle your cage. And if you're like everybody else who's ever been through this journey called life, that journey always involves considerable suffering. Remember, success makes us complacent. That's why most people stay there. But complacency is static. It's comfortable, but it doesn't satisfy you know, some of you in this room, well, all of you in this room, are suffering in your life in some way, or somebody you know. Maybe you got the post-holiday blues, right? Maybe you didn't get what you wanted for Christmas. Maybe you didn't get that bike or whatever you wanted. I don't know. Big screen TV or whatever. Maybe you got some financial issues or some health issues or some family issues or relationship issues. Whatever, man. Y'all got something. So do I. We all do. We all have suffering and struggle in our life. I want you to consider something really important. That this suffering, this wrestling, this journey, this physical, mental, relational struggle, friends, is evidence that God places before you because it shows you how vulnerable you are. And we all want to run from it. We all want to be complacent because it's easy. Let me challenge you this morning. Don't. Patience, listen, patience and trust which, by the way, the word faith in the New Testament doesn't mean I believe that something exists. It means you trust God. It means trust. Pistis is the word. But faith, patience and trust can only be learned by being patient and trusting. Say that again. Patience and trust can only be learned by being patient and trusting. And God will give you the evidence you, where you need to go and he will lead you. But you've got to follow. The wise men were curious, and their angst drove them to follow where God was leading them despite the suffering, and I would even submit to you through it. And then finally, we see this, this really cool scene, which is a lot more mind-blowing than you probably ever thought. Finally, the wise men find the truth they've been seeking. This is, this is cool. Matthew tells us in verse 11. So the wise men arrive, they go to Bethlehem, they find this house where this little baby Jesus kid from Nazareth is running around. They go into the house, and verse 11 says this, and going into the house, watch this, how, how fast this happens. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary and his mother, sorry, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. There's no, hey, Mary, good afternoon, I'm Bob the wise man from Iran, how are you today, right? 
There's no, there's no introduction. There's no small talk. I mean, a caravan just pulled up in front of your home, and the most powerful men of the ancient Near East walk into your home. They see your kid who's playing with his new Christmas toys, and they fall down on the ground, and they worship him. Can you imagine how Mary must have felt? How bizarre it would have been? What in the world is going on? They meet him, and they fall down, and they worship. Let me show you something this is cool. I did not know this until this past week. That word worship there, we hear this word worship all the time. What does it mean, actually? Well, it's a Greek word, proskuneio. And it's a word with a lot of really cool nuance to it. It, it means, it does mean to fall down on the ground, but not in fear, but to fall down in, in awe and wonder. It means to fall down because you finally found the source of everything you've wondered about your entire life. It's like the answer has finally been given. You finally see the truth. You fall down. You worship. You are submitting to this baby in a diaper. But there's another kind of cool nuance to this, which I did not know. That word proskuneo also describes a dog. When, a, when, you're, when you come home from work or you come home from being out with your friends and your dog runs up and goes, <laughs> and he can't wait to see you, and he comes up and he rubs himself against you and he wants to lay in your lap and he wants to lick your face, you know what that is? Proskuneo, worship. That's what the wise men do. They are so, they're not licking his face, but the point is, they see this child and all they want to do is the most powerful men in the world fall down and want to be next to a baby. I like to think of this moment, and I made this up, you can use it, and it's not Greek. <laughs> I like to think of this as the aha moment. The aha moment. It's the moment you realize that the thing you spent your whole life chasing isn't a thing at all, but a person. The thing you spent your entire life trying to strive and to achieve isn't something you strive and achieve at all. It's something given to you, which is Jesus himself. I will never forget my aha moment. I was 26 years old. I'd been going to a church uh, where the rector was a good guy. He preached the gospel, which I'd never heard before. I'm not saying never said it, nobody ever said it, but I never resonated. I never just got the gospel, right? And I was reading a book called The Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis. Anybody here ever read it? It's a really good book. Some people like it. Some people hate it. I love it. Anyway, doesn't matter. Point is, I was reading this book, The Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis. And the book is about a, a, a devil named Screwtape who writes letters, the Screwtape letters, to, a, to, uh, to his, a junior demon teaching them how to tempt the human spirit. And it's a wonderful book because every time you think, it's, it's like this antagonistic story between the evil and good, between demons and the human spirit. And every time the human being makes one step forward, bam, he gets knocked two steps back. And I'm reading this book and I'm fascinated by it and I'm kind of disoriented by it, and I'm disquieted by it, and I finish the book, and I say to myself, I remember, I remember this like it was yesterday. Here's an angst moment. Laying on my bed, I finish the book, I remember thinking to myself, man, I'm hosed. I am, I'm not going to say exactly what I said, but I, I'm in, no matter what I do, no matter what I do, I said to myself, I can't possibly fight this fight. No matter what I did, I said to myself, this is a battle I cannot win. I remember this, laying there. And God said to me, not audibly, but like an intuition thing, 
This is a battle I cannot win on my own. And God said to me, Chris, that's the whole point, dude. This is a battle you cannot win. But I have won that battle for you. That was my aha moment. That was when I realized not only the depth of my own sin and brokenness, but the grace that Jesus Christ has given to me by his death on the cross in my place. And I would say at that moment, I mean, it took some time to kind of grow into this, but at that moment, my life changed. I, for the first time, I would submit to you, I actually worshipped God, meaning that it was he and not me that was the focus of my life. It had always been me before that, right? It was he and not me that was my savior. It was, it was he and not me that was the thing I'd always been searching for. That was my aha moment. That was the moment that I fell down and worshipped Jesus. What's your aha moment? What's yours? And did you notice something interesting? And I'm going to wrap up. When these wise men finally see the answer to all the questions they had in their lives, all the longing in their hearts, all the angst they'd carried, they worship him by giving up what had, they had done, then used to base their worth. What do they give him? Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Can I just translate that for you? That's a lot of money. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh are extremely valuable things in the ancient Near East, and people have submitted or speculated that maybe it was the value of this gold, frankincense, and myrrh that Jesus used in part to fund his ministry. Who knows? The point is, worshiping God requires sacrifice. And the reason it does is because it requires you to take what was valuable to you before and now putting it in second place behind what is now the most important to you. Sacrifice is to give up something you value for something better. Not begrudgingly, not as a duty. Nobody gave the wise men pledge cards and had a stewardship campaign. No, what they did is as soon as they worshiped Jesus, when they realized, when they finally met him and saw him, they just give. Friends, as we embark, we're embarking on our stewardship campaign this, today, and it's not very long, and as we embark on the rest of our lives, let's just see this story for what it is, the story of the conversion of the human heart from this angst to peace and joy in Jesus Christ. Let us follow the example of these wise men. You know, when St. Paul, Paul finally met Jesus, he said the very same thing. He says in Philippians chapter 3, verse 8, I count all things as trash compared to the saving knowledge of my Lord Jesus Christ. So here's my challenge for you today. Friends, let us be wiser men and women whose lives have been freed from angst and worry and who finally found the one who has called you from the moment of your creation and who calls each of us now to him. Shall we pray? Father, teach us. Teach us to see the circumstances in our lives that pique our curiosity. Help us to see them and help us to go. Help us to see the evidence you place before us. Give us the courage to do it. Help give us the courage to suffer waiting for your guidance. And give us the courage to say yes and submit our lives as those wise men did when they met your son. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to our Trinity Episcopal Church podcast. 
To find out more about the work God is doing through Trinity, visit us online at trinityvero.org and follow us on Facebook.